Approximately 2,000 years ago, a most marvelous event took place. There was a little baby born, and it was wrapped in swaddling clothes, and it was laid in a manger. I trust no one here this morning um, would fail to understand who that is. An announcement was made about this event to some shepherds who were just outside of Bethlehem watching over their flocks by night. And God sent a message to them. They're the very first ones to get the information about this event. I think that's very noteworthy that God chose shepherds. In fact, throughout history, we notice the favor of God toward those in this profession. In the book of Genesis, in the beginning, we find where Adam and Eve had two sons. One was named Cain and one was named Abel. We find that Abel was a keeper of the flock. We find that Cain was a tiller of the ground. Cain was the oldest. We find that the Lord showed favor unto Abel. Abel brought an offering to the Lord, the first thing of the flock. The Bible says that God accepted Abel and his offering. We notice the order he accepted first of all and had respect unto Abel as a person. Then he had respect unto the offering of Abel. But he had not respect unto Cain and the offering he made. It's a picture of a man bringing his works before God rather than a sacrifice. In the 25th chapter of Genesis, we find there's twins born. These twins are born unto Rebekah. Rebekah is the wife of Isaac. We find where the Lord says unto Rebekah that two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy womb. And it says, the elder shall serve the younger, when one shall be stronger than the other. Four things the Lord tells Rebekah about these twins. Two nations, two manner of people. One shall be stronger and the elder shall serve the younger. Generally speaking, that was in reverse, but God passed over the older to the younger. These twins are born, and one is Esau and one is Jacob. We're told that Esau was a cunning hunter, but Jacob was a plain man dwelling in tents. We come to the life of Moses. Exodus chapter 3, we find Moses, the age of 80, is keeping his father-in-law's flock on the backside of the desert. Not just in the desert, but it's on the backside of the desert. You ever heard people use the expression on the backside of the 40? <laughs> well, he's on the backside of the desert. But on the backside of the desert, there's a mountain called Horeb, which is called the mountain of God. Better to be where God is at on the backside of the desert than to be somewhere else without the Lord, right? Where was David? What's the first thing we're told about David? Found in 1 Samuel chapter 16, we find where the prophet has gone to Jesse. Samuel's gone to Jesse because the Lord has revealed unto him that one of his children is going to be, you know, selected of God to be the king of Israel, a man after God's own heart. And we find where Jesse brings out, first of all, all of his sons except the youngest. We find where Samuel is, says, is there not another? And he says, yes, there is another, but he's the youngest. He's a keeper of sheep. Moses, David, Jacob, Abel. All these men 
were keepers of sheep. All these men were shepherds. So God is going to give the first announcement of the birth of his son unto shepherds. Shepherds literally were outcasts in the day I'm talking about. They were considered to be ceremonially unclean because of their profession. They were kept away from the temple for days, oftentimes weeks, and therefore were, didn't have access to go through the process of becoming clean for, for ceremonial worship. They were looked upon with contempt from that point of view. But God chose shepherds. He didn't choose the chief priests, didn't, didn't choose the scribes, or didn't choose the elders, didn't choose people in places of authority, didn't choose Herod or Pilate or any of the Roman rulers to make this announcement. He makes the announcement to shepherds. Later on, we find where the Lord would choose men to be his apostles, and once again, he goes in a direction that men would not go. He chooses fishermen in general. Not All of them were not fishermen. Luke was a physician. But most of them were fishermen. Now what do fishermen and shepherds have in common? First of all, they're both hardworking people. They know what hard work is. You were not a successful fisherman if you didn't work hard. You were not a successful shepherd if you were not diligent and used to hard work. They were men who understood the importance of unity and cooperation and working together. They were men who understood the realities of life. In other words, their profession, is, you might say, is where the rubber met the road, so to speak. They understood the basics of life, what it took to make a go of it. They were men who were used to perils, men who were used to adverse conditions, storms, predators, etc. And the Lord chose these kind of men. But on this occasion here, we're dealing with shepherds. We don't know how many shepherds. It was a group of them. And we don't even know their names. Not one name of these shepherds were brought to our attention. They were anonymous. God knew who they were. And God sends an angel to them. And the angel makes a declaration. The Bible says in Luke chapter 2, is where I'm at this morning, Luke chapter 2. An angel is sent from heaven to these shepherds. And the glory of the Lord shone round about them. He sent an angel and he sent his glory. Now I believe as they were watching over their flocks by night, keeping a watch over their flock, they were abiding in the fields. They were outside. They were not in, they didn't, they were not in a building. They were not in a house. They were outside under the stars. And they were watching. They were awake. They were alert. And God sent an angel with a message. In addition to sending this angel with the message, he sends his glory. You remember that. He sent his glory that shined all around about them at nighttime. Somehow, no, the Bible doesn't say this, but I believe night became as bright as day. And it caused the shepherds to fear. I, I think I can understand why it would. They're out there. You know, they've gone out at night watching over their flock, be sure that they're, you know, uh, keeping a watch out for the predators and the beasts and things that would like to devour their lambs and their flocks. And all of a sudden, an angel comes down from heaven, totally unexpected. They were not given advance notice. And God's glory just shined all around about them. And these two things cause them to have great fear, but the angel speaks. 
And the angel says, fear not. How often do we find that expression in the word of God? But also, as I've told you many times before, read on because you're going to find out why you shouldn't fear. It says, fear not, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. A Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be good news unto all people. Now, a doctrinal point here. All people. Is that all people, you know, without exception? Or is that all people without distinction? Because you're going to read that word all along with the word people numerous times. And you've got to decide which it is. It's be good news to all people. Well, was it good news to Herod? Herod would be in the category of all people if you're talking about all people without exception. Herod wasn't happy about it. Herod wasn't pleased about it when he finally did hear about it. In fact, he devised a plan that he might actually take the life of this little baby. And had all the children in Bethlehem, two years old and under slain, he wasn't happy about it. No, it's good news to all people that are God's people, that are God's children, God's family. Been good news for nearly 2,000 years. And he is born this day in the city of David, a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Notice in saying he is born this day in the city of David, a soldier, a general, a judge. That wouldn't have done him any good. No, it's not a judge. It's not a general. It's not a politician of some kind. It's a Savior. Unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior, which is Christ the Lord, which will be good news unto all people. And then... Along with this angel, a heavenly host came together. I don't know how big the host was, but a heavenly host came together. And they said, glory to God in the highest, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. This message has three parts to it. Glory to God in the highest, peace on earth, and goodwill toward men. Now let's just back up a second or two. Go back to the first part of this chapter. And by the way, the, the gospel, uh, the chap, chapter 2 in the Gospel of Luke is a very uh, unusual chapter because it's the only place in the four gospels where we have some events of the Lord's life that occur between his birth and the time he begins his ministry at the age of 30. When he was 42 days old, according to the law of Moses, in the law of purification, you'll find where Mary and Joseph bring the Lord Jesus Christ into the temple, and that's where they have the experience, well, Simeon has the experience of holding the Lord's Christ. Then at the age of 12, we find where they've been to Jerusalem, again, in obedience to the law of God, and were leaving and gone a day's journey when they recognized that Jesus wasn't with them. And they turned around and went back and found him in the temple, and there when they found him in the temple, he was in the midst of the doctors and the lawyers. And he was asking questions and answering questions. He was 12 years of age. Luke's the only one that records those two events. If we go back to the opening verse, or to the verse, the opening of this chapter, chapter 2 of the Gospel of Luke, we find where the ruler of the world at that time, and I want to emphasize the ruler of the world, the ruler of the Roman Empire, uh, Augustus Caesar is, in, is, is ruling. But while he's ruling over the world at that time, he's not in control of everything. All power is still in glory. All power is in heaven. And while Augustus Caesar might be the earthly ruler, the one that's in true control is God who's in heaven. Never forget that. 
It does not matter who is ruling on this earth. There's one higher than that, and it's God in heaven. All right? So he decrees attacks upon the world at that time, doctrinal point. The word world is used in so many different ways in the Bible. But the world in consideration here was the world of the Roman Empire. And it is true the Roman Empire had reached further than any previous empire had ever, uh, had ever done in the history of mankind. You go back to the book of Daniel, you'll find where Daniel, of course, explains to the king who had that vision, there was going to be four kingdoms. There was the Babylonian kingdom. There was the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. There was the kingdom of, of the Grecian Empire. And then last was the Roman Empire. It's the Roman Empire that's in control at this very time that the Lord Jesus Christ is born. Joseph and Mary lived in a town called Nazareth. But because of this tax that the Roman government under Augustus Caesar had been decreed, we find that Mary and Joseph leave Nazareth and they come to Bethlehem and she's great with child at the time. While they're there at Bethlehem, she's going to have this child. What happens if there's no tax been decreed by Caesar, Augustus Caesar? She would have that child in Nazareth. But she can't have the child in Nazareth because God says she's going to have the child in Bethlehem. Micah 5, 2. And thou in Bethlehem, Judah, although art the smallest among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth he that shall be ruler in, among my people, saith the Ancient of Days. Micah 5, 2 says, the Lord's child, the Lord's son will be born in Bethlehem. The reason they're in Bethlehem is because of Caesar Augustus's tax. That's why they're down there. He knew nothing about it. Yes, he was the most powerful man upon the face of this earth, but there was one in heaven that was in control over him. So they come to Bethlehem. And while they're in Bethlehem, she has this child, but there's no room for them, T-H-E-M, there's no room for them in the end. I think that's a significant statement. Jesus was born to a family of poverty. A family of poverty. What did the angel say unto the shepherds? For in you is born this day in the city of David a Savior which is Christ the Lord. And this is a sign. He shall find him wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger. Of all places, Son of God is born and he's laid in a manger. It was a sign. It could not be a sign if other children who were born that day were also laid in a manger. Right? You remember in Matthew chapter 12, verses 39 and 40, where the Pharisees come to the Lord and they said, Lord, show us a sign. And the Lord said, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and no sign shall be given unto thee, but the sign of Jonah being the belly of the whale for three days and three nights. As he was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth three days and thir three nights. That will be a sign to you. But that's not the first sign. The first sign was given in prophecy back in Isaiah 7 and 14. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Emmanuel, which we know according to Matthew 1, 23, means God with us. Behold, I show you a sign. That's a sign, isn't it? Modern versions of the Bible, many of them, 
Do not read that way. It reads like this. Behold, I show you a sign. A young woman shall have a son. That's no sign at all. But the virgin having a child now, that's a sign. And so now we find sign number two. The angel says unto the shepherds, Behold, I show you a sign. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and laying in a manger. That's going to be the sign. I'm sure there were other children born that night in Bethlehem and surrounding area. I'm sure he was not the only child born, but I can assure you he was the only child born that was wrapped in swallowing clothes and laid in a manger. Now, that's not a crib. We got, still have a crib at home now that Karen's dad made many, many years ago. Each of our children were placed into a, into a crib after, shortly after he was born. I remember this one scene. We were in Florida. My mother and father came down from North Carolina. They hadn't seen Sarah yet. And she was our last child born, the only one born in Florida. And when they got there, my dad was so, uh, you know, so much in a hurry to get out of the van and get in the house. And of course, this time he's getting on up in age and, and everything. And he wants to get there before mother. <laughs> and they get in the house and he's so... <laughs> So excited about it, when he gets over to the crib, he stumbles and almost dumps Sarah out on the floor. I won't ever forget that. And uh, of course, Sarah doesn't remember that. <laughs> she, has, she knows it because we've told her about it. A manger. What is the manger? That same word for manger is translated stall over here in Luke chapter 13, verse 11. In Luke 13, 11, you're going to find where the Lord addresses some Pharisees concerning a miracle he's just performed. There was a woman who had a, an affliction of 38 years. And the Lord relieved her that affliction. That affliction was one in which she was bowed over almost all the way to the ground. She had had it for 38 years. And the Lord delivered her from that affliction. But he did it on the Sabbath day. And they criticized him for it. And the Lord said, O ye hypocrites, which one of you will not loose his ox or his ass on the Sabbath day from the stall and lead it to watering? The word for stall is the same word translated manger. Back over here in Luke chapter 2. I grew up on a farm. We had horses uh, or, you know, um, animals. We had cows and we had a barn and we had stalls. I know what all that's about. And the very fact that the Lord Jesus Christ was born in this world, there was no room for them in the inn. That expression, no room for them, that means Jer uh, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus, indicates to me, and, and experience tells me, and history tells me, there's never been room for the Son of God in this world and those who follow him. If Joseph had been a man of means, there would have been a place found for them in the inn. But no, and you would have thought somebody would have enough compassion, wouldn't you? Enough compassion on this couple here who have no money and she's about to, to you know, bring forth a child in this world and they say, we don't have any room. We don't have any room. And they leave the inn and they find a place in a stall where there's a the manger. It's kind of like a feeding trough. And they wrap that child in swaddling clothes. Now, swaddling clothes were long strips of cloth that was wrapped around newborn babes to give them warmth and to give them comfort and to give them strength and security. Mary did the best she could for her little child. He's the firstborn and she's brought forth. 
And of course, we know that she's a virgin. Now, I want you to look at this scene just for a moment. Here in a stall, in a, you know, where there are animals, where there's a manger, a feeding trough, is a little baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and just laying there. There's never a time in a person's life when they're any weaker or any more helpless than when they're a baby. When a baby is first born, the baby can't talk, the baby can't walk, the baby can't feed itself, the baby can't clothe itself, the baby is totally 100% dependent upon a loving individual to take care of them, right? There's never a time a person's any weaker than that. So we see this picture of this little baby in a feeding trough in a manger wrapped in swallowing clothes. And you take a look at it and you think, could this possibly be the Son of God? Well, when the Son of God was to make his arrival in this world, the prophets had said several things about it. So let's see if he fits. First of all, he had to be born of a virgin. Isaiah 7, 14, once again, Behold, a virgin child conceive and bring forth a son. That shall call his name Emmanuel. Does this little baby fit that prophecy? Yes, he did. He was born to the Virgin Mary. This baby must be born in Bethlehem. Was he born in Bethlehem? Yes, he was. Micah 5, 2, they already quoted to you. He's born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem had a rich heritage in the history of the Israelites. You're going to find many of the exploits of David took place in Bethlehem. In fact, Bethlehem is called the city of David. You'll find this is the place where Rachel died when she gave birth to Benjamin, her last, the youngest child of Jacob, next to Joseph. And you go back and read this over here, I think in Genesis, I believe about chapter 35, and you're going to find where the Bible says that uh, when she was in hard labor, uh, that one of the attendants told her, thou shalt have this child. And she did. But when she had this child, she died in childbirth. And the Bible says she died, and in parentheses, her soul departed from her. You know what that tells me? That tells me that when you die, your soul immediately, at that very moment, departs the body to go home to be with the Lord in heaven. Not a week later, not a month later, not a year later, not even a, a minute later. At that very moment, you draw your last breath and your life ends in this world here, your soul departs that body and goes straight into glory. They're going to bury her in Bethlehem. She has that child. She names him Benoni, which means son of my sorrow. Jacob's going to name that child Benjamin, which means the son of my right hand. Now, he's born in the city of David, Bethlehem means a house of bread. The Lord Jesus Christ, as we read in John chapter 6, is referred to here, what? As the bread of life. He came to this world as the bread of life. The bread of life is born into the city that goes by the name of Bethlehem, which means the house of bread. Very appropriate. The Lord Jesus Christ, we're told in Isaiah chapter 53, was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, fulfilling one of the two names of Benjamin. The other name, the son of my right hand, we look at Psalms 110, verse 1. It says, The Lord said unto my Lord, Set thou my right hand to make thine enemies thy footstool. Where did Jesus Christ sit when he left this world? There's at least six or eight different verses in the New Testament that tells us that Jesus, when he left this world, went into heaven and sat down the right hand of the majesty on high. Let's just look at one of them. Hebrews 1 and 3. 
who being in the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purchased from our sins set down the right hand of the majesty on high. Three things it said about the Lord here. He was the brightness of the glory of the Father. He was the express image of the Father. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. You know, when God created the heaven and the earth, he created it by the power of his word. He said, let there be, let there be, let there be. And it happened every time. Just whatever he said, let it be, it came to pass. How in the world has it existed for 6,000 years? Because he upholds all things by the power of his word. That's, how it, that's why it is. How many sons have we had in the last 6,000 years? I think one, right? Has the Lord ever replaced a son? I had to replace some light bulbs yesterday. Suppose the last 22 years, I got seven out of it. Outside, I had to use a long extension ladder. Of course, I got David to do it while he was here with the help of the other boys. I'm no dummy. I realize uh, I'm not real young anymore. The sun's still there. When you see the sun today, I want you to understand Adam saw that same sun. Abraham saw the same sun. Isaac and Jake saw the same sun you see. You see the moon tonight, you can be looking at the moon that Adam and Eve looked at and no doubt held hands and looked back and said, oh, what a beautiful sight. The same stars you see glittering out there in the universe. People for 6,000 years have been looking at those stars. God's not had to replace any of them. Not a one of them. So he's born in Bethlehem, fits the prophecy of Micah 5 too. He's born of a virgin, fits the prophecy of Isaiah 7 and, and 14, along with Isaiah 9, 6. Unto us a child is born, okay, a son is given. Is this a boy or a girl? It's a boy. It's a boy. Fits that, does he not? Must be in the household of David. Go read 2 Samuel chapter 7, and you'll find where the Lord promises that when his son comes to this world, it'll be the household of David. Is the household of David? Yes, that's why Joseph and Mary are in Bethlehem. Because they both are the lineage of David. You read in uh, Genesis 49.10 where Jacob pronouncing a prophecy upon all of his children said for the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the lawgiver between his feet till Shiloh come. The word Shiloh is a name for Christ, the Messiah. When Shiloh would come, Judah would still be there, but not any longer after Shiloh came. So what's happened here? This is the first tax that the Jewish people have had to pay in the Roman Empire. They didn't have to pay a first tax until the Messiah came, until Shiloh came. Now the scepter has departed from Judah. And the law given 20 feet, Shiloh has arrived. Now look at every single prophecy concerning the arrival of Christ. I see this baby fits that prophecy. If you go back to the first chapter, you'll find where the angel had come and said unto Mary, this is Gabriel here, we know, and says unto Mary this. Says unto Mary, uh, thou, art, thou hast found great favor with God. And said, the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall rest upon thee, and that holy thing she born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And your cousin Elizabeth also, who was known as being barren, she hath conceived and shall bring forth a son. That's John the Baptist. And when all this is told Mary, here's what Mary says. She says, let it be according to thy word. In other words, thy word has said it. 
it shall come to pass. And so everything about the Lord, from the time he was born to the time he was crucified, everything, his 33 and a half years, every detail of his life can be found in prophecy over here in the Old Testament, and every single prophecy came to pass to a jot and to a tittle. And it all starts right here at his birth. When he's born in Bethlehem, wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And then the angel comes to those shepherds again, those outcasts who are in the field at night attending their flocks, watching over their flocks at nighttime. And the angel comes and says, fear not. Remember the angel is set and the glory of the Lord is shining around about them. The glory is there and they fear. They're greatly afraid. But then he says, fear not for unto you is born this day in the city of David, specifically a Savior, which is Christ the Lord, which shall be good news unto all people. And then God sent a heavenly host. Now, from a human perspective, when you look at that little baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger, now you see those shepherds might have thought, well, you know, uh, he should have been dressed in royal clothes, uh, laid in the, you know, uh, born into the finest house, had, had the finest surroundings and had attendants all around him. But no. He's wrapped in swallowing clothes. He's laid in a manger in a stall, in a feeding trough where the animals come and feed. The only place she could find to lay her new firstborn son. And then the angels, they said, glory to God in the highest. Peace on earth and goodwill toward men. That's the message. The shepherds heard it. The shepherds believed it. Then it says, when the angel went away into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, let us go and see this sight. There's no doubt about it. There's no question in their minds about it. They didn't say, let us go and check it out. <laughs> let us go and see if this is really true. Let us go uh, and see what we just heard indeed is the truth. No, they didn't say that. They heard it and they believed it and they acted upon it. You know, there's a saying uh, that you hear every once in a while, somebody say, well, you know, the Bible said it and I believe it and that settles it. Is that in the right order? The Bible says it, I believe it and that settles it. Is it not settled whether you believe it or not? If the Bible says it, that settles it. Now you should believe it and you ought to believe it, but your belief is not gonna settle what's already settled. Mary said, let it be according to thy word. The shepherd said, let us go and they made haste, the Bible says. It prompted them to go into action. And they go down to Bethlehem, the very place where the angel said, this child has been born. And they find that child, just like the angel said, wrapped in swallowing clothes and laying in a manger. The shepherds heard, the shepherds believed, the shepherds acted, shepherds came, the shepherds saw. And then the Bible says, that they then proclaimed this matter, and when they left, they published it. In other words, they had a testimony of what had just happened unto them. The angel come and bring in the message they went and saw for their own self. It reminds me a little bit of the Queen of Sheba. You go back and read 1 Kings chapter 10 about the Queen of Sheba. The news had come all the way down to where the Queen of Sheba was concerning Solomon, all his great wisdom, and all the great acts of, of Solomon. And the queen of Sheba was so aroused at this message 
that she traveled hundreds of miles, not in a plane, not on a train, not on a bus, not in a car, but she traveled hard, dusty roads in hot temperatures for days to get there. And when she got there and saw everything that her eyes beheld, and there was Solomon, and there was all of his attendants, and they were all very happy. Here's her response. She said, well, the half has not yet been told me. <laughs> now notice, she didn't say the half has not just been told in it. She says, the half has not yet been told me. You know, I kind of feel that way myself as I, if I've been in this thing quite a long time, especially for a young man. Quite a long time I've been in this. And the more I seem like I try to understand and the more God gives me understanding, it makes me realize how little I know. The more I'm blessed to know, the, the more I realize how little I know. The more God blesses me to be able to see things in his word, the more I realize how much more there is to see. Isn't that amazing? That's really amazing. Most books men would read and one time does it for them. It may be some, well, I know there are some books a person might read twice. Very seldom people read a book more than that. I've been trying to read this book for a long time. It gets better and better as time goes on. I see more and more. The more I read, the more I try to look into it. The more God shows me, the more I realize there is to see. The more God shows me, the more it makes me realize how little I know. Now, when you see this scene of Jesus as this little baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in the manger, I want you to think about three verses I'm going to give to you here that's mentioned later on by the Apostle Paul. Galatians 4.4, Now, when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman. You're looking at it right here made under the law. They were under Moses' law, under Roman law, made under the law, made of a woman under the law to redeem them that was under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons whereby we cry, Abba, Father. You see that right here, Galatians 4, 4, right here in this scene. In 1 Timothy 3 and 15, it says, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God manifests in the flesh. You're looking at it right here. This is God manifest in the flesh. This little baby you're looking at is God. This little baby you're looking at is God manifest in the flesh. This is God's beloved son right here. Oh, by the way, uh, the name David means beloved. This is the city of David. David's name means beloved. We find where the Lord Jesus Christ was called that on at least two occasions when he was baptized. A voice rang out from heaven, this is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased. On the mountain of transfiguration, the Lord said unto Peter, James, and John, uh, he, you know, uh, when Peter said, let us build three tabernacles, the voice of God rang out saying, this is my beloved son, hear ye him. His name was Beloved. Just like David's name is Beloved. He's wrapped in swollen clothes and laid in a manger. This is God you're looking at right here in this little, when you see this little baby. This little baby has spent about nine months in his mother's womb, just like you did, just like I did. And now he's born. I was, born on, I was born under more favorable conditions than Jesus was. What about you? I mentioned uh, two or three weeks ago on Karen's birthday how she was born at home. <laughs> but she was born on her mother's bed. And the first ride she ever had was in an ambulance from the house to the hospital. Not from the hospital to the house, but from the house to the hospital. 
Jesus is born and wrapped in swine clothes and he's laid in a feeding trough. He's laid in a manger. It's the Son of God. Look in 2 Corinthians 8 9. And the Apostle Paul said, For we know the grace of God that though he was rich, yet he became poor, that we through his poverty might become rich. I want you to think about that verse when you take a look at this scene right here of this little baby wrapped in swallowing clothes laying in a manger. This little baby lying in a manger is one who created the entire universe. John chapter 1 verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by him, without him was not anything made that was made. The one who made the entire universe, spoke the world into existence, is this little baby wrapped in swallowing clothes laying in a manger. Here's another one I just thought of. John 1 and 14. All right. Concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, it says, uh, for he became flesh. Okay. The Lord Jesus Christ, the word became flesh and was manifest among us. The word, the second person in the Godhead. 1 John 5, 7, there are three to bear record in heaven. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. The second person in the Godhead, the Word. Capital W-O-R-D. What do you use a word for? You use a word to express yourself. You use a word to communicate, to talk to people, correct? Has there ever been a better communicator than the Lord Jesus Christ? Has there ever been a, a greater word than the Lord Jesus Christ? Yet this word, the second person of the Godhead, now as a little baby wrapped in swallowing clothes laying in a manger, is speechless. Oh, I'm sure he cried. I'm sure he did that. But no words came out of his mouth for a while. The word of God, speechless. This is the son of God you see laying here in this feeding trough. I want to emphasize one more time. In this stall right here, this is God's beloved son laying right here, wrapped in swaddling clothes, laying in this manger. Those shepherds heard it. Those shepherds heard the message. Now, this is not just interesting to me, but I think it's a very important biblical principle that you need to learn and never forget. God, bap God bypassed, you know, those in authority. He bypassed the VIPs. You know, the Bible teaches we're all VIPs. V stands for vanity. I stands for ignorance. And P stands for pride. We're all... We're all just saturated with that, aren't we? We're all VIPs. I know you didn't want to hear that kind of VIP, but anyway, that's what we are. The world says VIPs, very important persons. The Bible says V is vanity. We're all vain. Why do you think they call them vanity mirrors? <laughs> and I for ignorance. <laughs> and P for pride. In the first chapter of Luke, Mary breaks out into a short but well-known song and hymn. She starts off in verse 46. She says, My soul doth magnify the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. If Mary is immaculate, if Mary is sinless, why does she say he's God my Savior? She said Savior because she knew she needed a Savior like anybody else did. My soul doth magnify the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. It says, she goes on to say that God is mighty, he's done great things for me. But in this song, here's some other things that she said. She says, he has regarded the lowest state of his handmaid. She's, he's, she's talking about herself. A handmaid was just a servant, a little maid. 
says he's regarded, you know, me as a, as a handmaid, as a servant right here, the lowest state of the handmaid. Said he scattered the proud through the imagination of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their seats, but he's exalted those of low degree, lifted them up. He has fed the poor with good things and sent the rich away empty. Do you notice what she said? She says, the poor have been fed with good things. The rich he sent away empty. Those of low degree, God exalted. But those who are mighty, my friends, he brought them down. And the proud he has scattered in the imagination of their hearts. Yes, God chose shepherds, outcasts, to bring the news, to bring the first declaration of the birth of his son. God sends an angel from heaven. <laughs> An angel came all the way from, I don't know how far heaven is above the earth, but he came a long ways, but he came in a short period of time, I believe. And brings a message, those shepherds out there under the stars at night, unto you is born this day in the city of David. Does he meet all the biblical qualification to be the son of God? Yes. Isaiah 7, 14, Micah 5, 2. Isaiah 9, 6. Genesis 49, 10. Daniel, by the way, 2.44 gives us a timeline. The arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ needed to come on time. You go read Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, and you do all the calculations, you'll find out the exact time Christ was supposed to arrive on this earth, and he came exactly like Daniel said he would. Exactly. The angels gave a message. Here's what it was to the shepherds. The heavenly host did. Here's the last thing it says to the shepherds. Glory to God, where? In the highest. Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Glory to God in the highest. Where is the highest at? It's kind of an interesting expression to me. Glory to God in the highest. Well, the highest is where the highest is at. Who is the highest? The expression, the most high God, is found numerous times in the Old Testament. You take a look over here in the 14th chapter of Genesis, you'll find where Abraham's gone out to do battle uh, with 300 of his uh, hired servants. He goes out to do battle against the kings who came. You know, the battle of the kings, they came, they uh, took Lot and all his possessions away in captivity. Abraham goes and rescues him. And on the way back, you find where the king of Salem, who's Melchizedek, meets Abraham. And the first words of Melchizedek to Abraham is this. He said, blessed be Abram, the servant of the most high God, possessor of heaven and earth. And Abraham's going to tell the king of Sodom, blessed be, the, blessed be uh, the most high God, the possessor of all heaven and earth. Actually, four times that expression is used. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse 8. Verse 7 actually speaks about the most high God. And then the next verse says, when you notice those who are oppressed and those who have experienced perverted judgment, one thing or another, says, don't forget this, there's one who's higher than the highest that regardeth all these things. One that's higher than the highest. It's talking about God here. No matter how high a man may think he's at is, there's one higher than he is. Nebuchadnezzar learned that, did he not? Did he not learn that? In fact, when you go to the book of Daniel, 14 times in the book of Daniel, you'll find God referenced as the most high. 
14 times. You look in chapter 4 in particular, right after the Hebrew children have been delivered out of the fiery furnace, and you'll find every reference there to God is the most high, the most high. In the book of Acts chapter 7, you'll find where Stephen said, that as it's written by the prophets, the most high dwelleth not in tabernacles made with hands. So glory to God in the highest. When I look back over the scenes of the Bible, where God's glory has uh, uh, made itself known, you'll find when the tabernacle was finished by Moses, go to the last chapter of the book of Exodus, chapter 40. And in that chapter, you're going to find where Moses built the tabernacle exactly as God showed him in the mount. And when it's all done and complete, read the last two verses of Exodus chapter 40. It says, And there was a cloud upon the tabernacle, for the glory of God filled the tabernacle. Boy, that must have been exciting. And you come to 2 Chronicles, I believe it's chapter 5. And you'll find where Solomon has built the temple. And after he got through building the temple, the Bible says the priest could not go in. Why? Because the glory of God filled the temple. But God's glory that dwelt in the tabernacle departed. God's glory that dwelt in the temple came a time and it departed because of the disobedience of the nation of Israel. But we come over here and we take a look at the Lord Jesus Christ, that little baby wrapped in swallowing clothes laid in a manger. Let's go back to John 1.14. For the word was made manifest and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory as the glory of the only begotten of the Father. You're looking at Shechaniah glory right here in the Lord Jesus Christ. God's glory has returned in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory one more time, my friends, is upon the face of this earth. Now see the expression praise to the glory of his grace used three times in the first chapter of the book of Ephesians. Ephesians 1, let's just begin in verse 4 just for a moment. According as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children of Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his own will. Praise to the glory of his grace, for he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Did you get that? <laughs> Praise to the glory of his grace, wherein he, God, had made us accepted in Jesus. Did we get in Jesus by accepting him? <laughs> no, we did not. If God had left it on that basis, there'd be nobody in Jesus. But we're in Jesus because God made us accepted in the beloved. You continue reading, you come to verse 12. And he speaks how we first trusted in Christ. When we first trusted in Christ. And then it says, after we heard the word of truth, we trusted in, in the Lord even to a greater degree. And he says, praise to the glory of his grace. And then the next verse, verse 14, I believe it is, speaks about until the final possession of the uh, redemption of the purchased possession. That's what's going to happen to the second coming of Christ when Christ comes again. When Christ speaks and bodies are resurrected and the family of God's gathered together and taken in the glory. He says, praise to the glory of his grace. Three times, praise to the glory of his grace. Ephesians 3.21, unto him be glory in the church throughout all ages world without end. 
That's what really separates the Lord's church from the denominational world. It's what separates the Lord's church from the churches of men. In the Lord's church, brethren, everything that's said and everything that's done is be to the praise of the glory of His grace. Glory to Him that's in the highest in peace on earth and goodwill toward men. When it comes to peace, let me just give you about four or five categories in closing this morning of peace that without Jesus Christ, you would experience none of them. There's external peace. Peace outward. Did you know when Christ was born in this world that there was worldwide peace? It's been a rare thing since the beginning of time when there was peace on a worldwide scale, but when Jesus was born under the Roman Empire, there was actually worldwide peace at that moment. And while there was worldwide peace when Christ was born, that's very fitting since he's called the Prince of Peace, right? Isaiah 9, 6, unless a child is born, unless a son is given, his nation is called Wonderful, Counsel of the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace was born at a time when there was worldwide peace. That's due to the providence of God having a world of peace when his son, the Prince of Peace, will be born into this world. And then there's the internal peace. There can be external peace and no internal peace. Do you know that? There can be external peace and no internal peace. But there can be internal peace when there's no external peace. you believe that? I do. I've had a lot of peace this year. Believe it or not, I have. <laughs> uh, I, I totally respect what we've been facing this year, but I'm going to tell you, I've had peace in 2020. I've tried my best to apply the verse that we've had on the prayer list for weeks and weeks now. Thou shalt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon thee. The Lord Jesus Christ told his disciples in John 14, 27, My peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth. He closed out his message in John 16, 33 like this. He says, The words I speak unto you, they are words of peace. In this world you shall have tribulation, but in me you shall have peace because I've overcome the world. I've had some internal peace. I don't know where you'd go to find external peace in this day and age, but I've had internal peace, and I want you to have internal peace. And then there's the peace that Jesus Christ, as the mediator, stood between God and men when he died on Calvary, when he made, his, his, you know, when he made an offering, a sacrifice to the Father. He's referred to in the book of, of Ephesians chapter 2 and Colossians chapter 1 as being our peace. Peace was made between God the Father that was offended when sin came into this world. Now the family of God and their Father in heaven, we have peace with each other. The entire, everything God does for us is based upon his goodwill. Do you know that? It's based upon his goodwill. That expression is used one other time in the Bible. It's found in Deuteronomy chapter 33. Don't have time to go over there and read it right now, but due to a prophecy that Jacob gave concerning Joseph. And after he talks about the precious things of heaven, the precious things of the sun, the precious things of the moon, the precious things of the earth, the precious thing of the dew and the rain and all these things, he says, and the preciousness of the goodwill of God that's found in the bush. He's talking about Exodus chapter 3. When you woke up this morning, 
and you saw the sunlight, you saw the goodwill of God. When you see the rain coming down from the sky and watering your grass and watering your garden and watering your crops, you'll look at the goodwill of God. And 2,000 years ago, the greatest act of God's goodwill was on display when God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, made under the law, wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger in a feeding trough. To me, that's the greatest example of God's goodwill that you'll ever see. That was the goodwill of His grace, the goodwill of His mercy, the goodwill of His compassion, the goodwill of His word. I close this morning from Revelation chapter 21, verses 3 and 4. I don't think there will ever be worldwide external peace again until what I'm about to tell you takes place. It says, God shall wipe away all tears, and there shall be no more death. There shall be no more crying. There shall be no more sorrow. There shall be no more tears. Now to me, that sounds like total, complete, perfect peace that the family of God will have when all the tribulations are over. Does that not sound like it to you? I just love reading that verse, don't you? You want me to read it to you again? I think you do. See, God shall wipe away all tears. And there shall be no more tears, you know, no more, because God's wiped them away, and there shall be no more crying. There shall be no more sorrow, there shall be no more death. It'll all be in the past. Never, ever, ever to be experienced again. God's goodwill toward men. I want you to remember this scene of Jesus wrapped in swaddling clothes and laying in a manger. From a human perspective, it might look like a child of weakness, but I can tell you from heaven's view and perspective, it was a son of power that was born here into this world.